This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Panel for Haymarket. Uh, I'm Clarissa Brooks, your moderator for today. Also a journalist, organizer, um, and currently program director for Just Media. Um, today we're going to be talking to some of my favorite journalists in the world about the work that they do um, and about what movement journalism is and more specifically um, why the end of objectivity has got to come sooner rather than later. Um, I want to start us off with a question um, I asked before we got started, uh, which is just, who are you? Whose are you? Um, and who do you do this work for? Um, and I will start with Diamond and then go from there. Thanks, Clarissa. So my name is Diamond Hardiman. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And I'm with Free Press as a part of the Media 2070 team, um, a media reparations project in News Voices Colorado, a project that works at the intersections of journalism and organizing. And I do this for people that know that uh, a better future and a safer future for Black folks is on the way. Um, so I'll pass it to someone else. <laughs> Yes. Uh, Sierra, do you want to go next? Um, hey, y'all. I'm Sierra Hinton. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. Um, I am the executive director publisher at Scalawag, which is a uh, Southern-based media organization out here fighting for justice. Um, and um, also work with a number of other programs um, focused on that same work. Um, I, man, do this for all my people, but right now um, am really centering um, Black leadership um, in my work and Black leaders. Um, this work is hard for everybody. Uh, it's especially hard for us, um, Black women, Black femmes, um, and Black trans folks in particular. So really trying to hold it down um, and get resources to all of us. Thank you for that, Delia. Hey, y'all. Uh, I'm Delia Jones. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, and I am the Director of Community Engagement at Texas Observer, um, as well as I do writing on the side. So I do a lot of coverage of um, rural uh, Southern communities, specifically Black folks, arts and culture, um, as well as like environment, other issues. Um, and I do this for all the country folks out there. I do this for all the people <laughs> um, who are often forgot about when we talk about um, rural coverage or just like um, rural news in general. So thank you. Um, and last but not least, Anoa. Greetings, everyone. My name is Anoa Changa, and I'm an independent journalist, and I sometimes get to throw down with Sierra at Scalawag, which is exciting. Um, and I write in several different places and focus on politics, electoral justice, specifically as a lane of coverage. Um, and I just 
show up wherever I'm needed in a reporting journalistic capacity, right? Um, who do I do this for? I I just feel like the importance of telling narratives from the perspective of people who are living those experiences is extremely valuable and important. Um, and so, so I do it for people who don't see themselves in the way traditional news coverage is done. Um, and I do this for the folks who came before us who made, uh, who put forth the mandate, right, to make sure that we have self-determined coverage, right? So the Ida B. Wells, uh, the Martin Delaney's, just, just, just so many people. I mean, people always point to Frederick Douglass, but Martin Delaney was right there with him. I mean, there's so many people ahead of us, the Chicago Defender, like we have such a lineage ahead of us. And so just being in that space and this space is why I do what I do. Um, I wanted to add on to that list of folks. Um, Marvell Cook, a good fave as well. Um, I'll answer and say that I'm Clarissa, they, she pronouns. Um, I do this work truly to like, at some point, make my grandma Macy proud who passed away in 2011. Um, She was a black domestic worker um, who just deserved better. And I hope that my work um, creates better conditions for her. Um, So she's kind of always at the core of what I'm doing. Um, Yeah, thank y'all for bringing those folks into this space. I wanted to start us off with, how do you define movement journalism? Um, and more specifically, what does objectivity mean in your work? Um, and how are you looking to kind of dismantle that? Yeah, I'll start. Um, so um, when I say movement journalism um, and um, my comrades and peers that I work with, um, We talk about journalism in service of justice and liberation. Um, And that, you know, definition is dynamic on purpose, um, because just as Clarissa just framed this question, like it really is something that folks ought to have the space to define for themselves um, in their own work. Um, But, you know, I think some of the ways that that looks is um, making journalism with communities um, and journalism coming from folks who are actually rooted um, in those communities and have built um, reciprocal relationship with the folks um, that they are reporting with. Um, Also, uh, the power structures that we cover within journalism. So thinking about not focusing so much on covering institutional power, but focusing more on covering people power and how folks are coming together to organize within their communities um, and the stories that exist there. Um, those are some of the things that that really resonate with me um, and come front of mind. Um, and then I think thinking about objectivity, um, it's just this dismantling of the status quo. Um, you know, I tweeted earlier that like, it's made up like there is no such thing as objectivity. Um, you know, we all bring bias, um, into our work. Um, and therefore we, none of us can ever be truly objective. Um, and so, yeah, just like many things, just another structure put in place to, um, oppress folks. Um, and that is like really at the core of why it's gotta, gotta end. Yeah, I, I also want to plug if you have not bought Lewis Wallace's book, 
for the podcast. This is the plug um, to do that. I think um, I did a training recently about objectivity and literally objectivity was made as a way to silence labor movements and journalism as a way to um, stop Marvell Cook as she was organizing her newsroom. Like, you know, very much like race and other oppressed things. It's not real because some white man made it up. Um, and it ain't never been real. So um, I want to talk a little bit about um, how are you looking to unravel that in your sourcing, in your reporting, um, and how you uh, do this work. And I'll start with Delia. Cool. Hi. Um, so I guess I can <laughs> I can use kind of the example of what we're working on now. Um, me and um, a great journalist named Zakaria Washington um, are essentially for the next year going to eight different communities and actually going in those communities and surveying folks, specifically folks of color, about what their perceptions of media are, kind of their trust of it, and then what issues they feel like need to be prioritized. Um, and on top of that, what we're doing is also training folks on media literacy, right? How do you combat disinformation and misinformation in a responsible way? But also, how do you consider the history um, and kind of the foundation of what journalism is built on and kind of understanding the history of oppression in journalism. Um, and then we're also teaching people how to do community storytelling. So like when you cannot depend on an outside source or if you're, you live in a news desert, right? Um, you know, how can you kind of harness the power or the tool? I call journalism is a tool. It is a skill. A lot of people don't know that. Um, but how can you harness that to better your community? And so what we're doing is trying to set a precedent for the rest of the state um, and hopefully, you know, parts of the nation too, on like how you actually engage and prioritize um, marginalized voices. I think that a lot of the old guards in Texas, um, they do politics well. And anytime you go to any news source in Texas, we have great political coverage, right? But it's a problem when like the editors and chiefs of like a news organization can rub elbows with like a conservative, right, politician. But anytime that like I, as a black reporter, want to go out and report on a black community, that's you know, not unbiased enough. Right. Um, and so that's kind of how we're <laughs> we're kind of combating that. And then also, I think it's important to, again, ground people in that history. So also teaching young journalists about the history of oppression and journalism in this state. There were specific there. Texas is just known for so many things, especially a lot of black ass things. We have a very large black population <laughs> and a lot of history. So when we talk about Texas, we talk about Freeman colonies, right? We talk about generations of like black liberation movements and, and you know, all of these like leaders in these communities who were starting news publications in an effort to undo a lot of the damage that a lot of these uh, legacy media people who are still here, I mean, media newsrooms that are still here and have yet to reckon with its past, um, we're doing in the first place. So um, I, even when you asked the question earlier, you know, who are you here for? What do you do this work for? You know, not only just my family back home, but also knowing that I'm standing on the shoulders of folks who were already doing movement journalism without necessarily calling it movement journalism. So. Yeah. I want to go to um, Anoa and then Diamond. Anoa, I wanted to ask a little bit about um, how this work of undoing objectivity shows up in your electoral coverage within the past year. Um, another plug, if you're not hip to Anoa's electoral coverage, you're behind. It's catch up. Um, but how has that shown up within the year? Um, and how are you like actively trying to dismantle that? 
Thank you for the question and the plug and more reason to get the teenager on the website to get it back up uh, and running and functional. But um, I mean, one thing, you know, it's so cool being here with Sierra because Sierra and Lovey over at Scalawag gave me the opportunity this fall um, to co-vision, co-create with them a series called As the South Votes. Um, And so, you know, playing off the phrase, as the South goes, so goes the nation. So as the South South Votes, so goes the nations. And we was right. Right. <laughs> I mean, like, um, but we but 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 it was a series of conversations just really digging into just some questions people had around the election. Right. Like everything from like, what do you do if, you know, you witness voter intimidation at the polls to what about voter ID? Just real like basic kind of, um, you know, informational style conversations. We brought in, you know, actual the actual experts themselves, organizers. And so I think for me, for a lot of the work I do, you were also asking about sourcing. You know, I look at organizers, I look at people who've been doing these this work around, you know, voter suppression and electoral engagement in communities as experts, right? Not just the county administrator or the state elected official who, regardless of what, you know, anyone has told you in any type of training, um, they also have agendas and biases, right? Like they, I mean, right now, for example, you brought this up earlier, Clarissa, you know, the state of Georgia is ramming through some of the worst voter suppression legislation since the Jim Crow era. And we see the same champions who were celebrated for standing up against Trump um, being the mouthpieces to explain why this is good legislation. When you see Gabriel Sterling, when you see the Secretary of State, these are people who are plastered all over, you know, mainstream outlets like MSNBC, CNN, you know, on the cover of a magazine here in Atlanta. And these are the same people trying to encourage or or, or trying to claim that limitations that remove thousands of people from the rolls or bar their access to voting in an accessible manner is purely accessible for uh, administration purposes. And so um, so a lot of my coverage also looked at kind of peeling back that veil of just taking elected officials at their word and really calling it what it was, right? Going back to some of the writing I did earlier um, last year at PRISM, right after the pandemic happened, um, we were having this flurry of conversation around uh, vote by mail. That was actually one of the first videos I did with Scalawag as well, was about vote by mail. How does it work? What does it look like? What are we even talking about? Because for most of the country, that was something that was completely like unknown and different. And what's also really interesting is like there are potential, I guess, allies in journalism, for lack of a better phrasing, in terms of like how to have like these explainers and conversations. There are people slowly trying to move in their own spaces, you know, who also see to, you know, uh, Dalia's point about like how do we help communities also be better engaged and informed and do a media literacy, but they don't necessarily have the same lens we do right around the politics and the approach. And so it's not just about a horse race. In fact, like I stayed away from the horse race coverage. I hated it. Um, I don't think it adds any value. I mean, I think also just repeating the same narratives that we hear from political consultants is also part of the problem. So like the point about how we separate ourselves and it's very interesting, right? Cause to be someone who is like very close connected um, and, or has previously worked in electoral space, right. Uh, but also now covering like, where is the line in terms of keeping like, you know, when you have professional friendships or relationships, but where is that line in the reporting? I mean, I think it's a very different thing when you're in community with people that you literally live 
in the same community with versus like, like Dali, I think you were saying when you're like kicking it with the head of like, you know, whatever organization um, that is actively trying to oppress and suppress people. And so this notion that somehow, I mean, my, my work stands in opposite of the notion that somehow people who are trying to advance justice are people with an agenda um, that should not be covered. And that's really more also about the gatekeeping that we see in the culture that's really insistent on maintaining white supremacy um, across the board. And I mean, we saw that even though this is not a journalistic you know, reference, but we saw that um, and recently over the weekend with, uh, I think it's Senator Van Hollen had the tweet about how you know he's friends with Republicans, he hangs out with Republicans, he shops with Republicans, all this stuff. And it's like, okay, so you're an elite white man who shops and buys products from other elite white men. But it's the same type of thing we see in terms of journalism. Like people respect these individuals, like the whole long conversation back and forth about whether or not taking cops at their word when you would have, when you would do an article and why we would couch the experiences of other people at the hands of the police, right? It's just because of people's value. They're aligned to believe that cops are worthy and their opinions matter or their representatives, their opinions matter, but actual people brutalized in community community, there's some reason or rationalization to justify it to dehumanize us, right? To make us less than. And so I really do, I mean, I try to just navigate, you know, a path that not only, I don't care about humanizing people. I don't need to humanize folks because they're human, but at the same time, like making sure our narratives are strong and coming through and that we are having the best representation of an issue um, that really helps people understand the full breadth of what is happening. Because I really do believe that we are creating possibility through the mediums that we're, we're participating in. So I'm going to turn it back over uh, <laughs> to you. I need my shirt, my Noah oh, shirt. Um, don't get me started. My feet I was literally like, just wrote that down. I don't need to humanize folks because they're human. Wrote it down. <laughs> Taking notes actively. Um, so many things in there. It felt so important. Um, I want to go to Diamond about the Media 2070 essay because I feel like it's one of the first essays I read that one is 100 pages of media history. I was like, truly, like, these are so many words. Um, Can I read them? I don't know. But also it gives context to um, the experiences that we've all had, right, of like an editor being like, "Mm, I feel like you're kind of leaning a certain way in this. Um, And it just gives clarity to the fact that folks have been fighting this fight for such a long time. Journalists who are abolitionists, journalists who are leftists, um, and the legacy of that work, but also like the fact that media publications have a long history in slavery. Um, why am I getting into, okay, Diamond, can you talk to us a little bit more about Media 2070, um, and how it connects to this, this growing movement of, of journalists? Word. Yeah. Um, Shout out to all my colleagues on the Media 2070 team. I think that what you said about connecting us to the long history of of media's harm against Black communities and Brown communities and Indigenous folks is really central to our theme around like understanding media as a system, the same way that we understand the prison industrial complex. So the same way that we think about economic justice and housing, like media is something that can be organized within and with and against. And so we have to understand the way that it's impacted our communities. And what Media 2070 says is that a debt is owed. Like based on what has been going on in our communities, we need to think about not only how are we 
um, apologizing for these past harms, but how are, how are we getting what our reparations are, whether it's cultural, whether it's institutional, whether it's money. That's a lot of what Media 2070 is about. We're going out to other people and saying, what do you think is like based on what's going on in your locality, what's going on in your community? And I think that it connects to this idea of movement journalism. One, because like I said, we're going out to folks and thinking, what are the solutions that we can dream together? But one one solution that we talk about often is the only thing that we're presenting at this point in time is solidarity. So like, how can we be in conversation with one another? How can we be supporting each other across these newsrooms, in and out of these newsrooms, across the globe, um, to think about how we can be an intervention on harm, right? Because we're talking about like, the long history, but also like what's happening in 2020. And I think that that's why people are holding it so closely because it it is an intervention of harm. Like how can we keep black people safe and how can we keep black journalists safe? Um, So that's why I I really love the project for sure. Yeah. Um, Another plug to Alicia Bell, a pure genius, just truly also from Charlotte, North Carolina. Just want to make sure that's said. So that North Carolina enters this space. Um, it's just it's just there. It's just present. Um, I want to talk a little bit about 2020. Um, I feel like emotionally 2020 was a lot, but media wise, 2020 was a mess. Um, and so I want to talk about how 2020 affected your coverage, your work, um, and just maybe some tropes that you saw that you weren't a fan of. Um, and how were you like watching how media was talking about the uprisings? And anyone can start. Yeah, man, this is so fresh because I popped off today on Twitter. Um about this like racial reckoning that happened in news that didn't actually like happen at all. Um, And people continue to show me each and every day that they really don't understand. And this goes to what Diamond was saying about like thinking, like thinking of a new, dreaming of a new future. Like there's such a lack of like radical imagination within journalism. And so Folks are just trying to build within existing structures and then expecting different results. And that's just like not how any of this works. Um, So that that's like one thing that I would lift up from the last year of like the uprisings supposedly spurred a racial reckoning that actually didn't happen. Um, Somebody else tweeted that it was just vibes and like hard agree. It was nothing but vibes, nothing but vibes. Um, And then the, uh, the other thing that I would say that I've really been trying to drive home with folks that was just outrageous um, and and maddening for me was, um, yeah, just uh, the like weird way that when journalists were covering the protests, no reparations, just vibes. Exactly. When folks were, when folks were covering um, the protests and journalists began to get hurt and arrested and everyone was up in arms, like not journalists, like this is wrong. We should be standing up against this. Like, let's write some letters. And it's like, where was the same energy when you were on TV watching black folks out here getting brutalized by cops uh, because they're protesting and what, like, what's the difference? I mean, for me, there is no difference, but clearly there's a difference for y'all. Um, and so it just it just really told on yourself, like it showed how folks uh, 
value themselves more um, or place more value on journalists um, than they do on just human life. Um, going back to, I don't need to humanize folks because they human. Um, yeah. So that was, that's another thing out of 2020 where I was just like, this industry, y'all, we are in trouble. <laughs> we are in, we are far behind. We are far behind. Jeez. Yeah. Um, I kind of wanted to jump in there too, because what everything that Sierra said is spectacular, but Also, like thinking, I think for me in 2020, it made me think about what do I want my role in journalism to be specifically and how active do I want that role to be? I think when I first started at the Texas Observer, I started out as a staff writer. Right. But I knew for myself, especially as a journalist, that just writing wasn't enough. Right. Doing investigations wasn't enough. Um, And kind of like how can like again, how Sierra said, how can we have a better imagination within journalism too, and kind of thinking about like what that looks like. I also think it changed my perspective about the, the labor of black journalists too, and the ways in which, you know, even though we kind of, we want to, we, we know what needs to be done, right? Like, you know, we can't save the world though. And so just thinking about like, just caring for myself as a black journalist who works at a non-black led publication too, right? And like knowing that I have limits as a journalist and then knowing that like I have to be, I guess, kind of strategic in a way and the ways in which like I, I do expend my energy within this this field of journalism. So I think that those are the two biggest takeaways from 2020, especially. And then also journalism racist as hell. Like, I mean, we've been on that, but I mean, it was just highlighted more in 2020. So we've been new, uh, Diamond Anoa. Yeah, I can hop in. Um, So I lead News Voices Colorado in Colorado. And we had these conversations with community members about how how are you feeling about the reporting that's going on? And what we really heard from people is that there isn't any context around like how things got to where they are and that they wanted people and journalists to have deeper relationships with them so that they could tell their stories, so that they can tell their experiences. And so that this historical arc can give people the information they need to act and to move on things. And I think to to rip off of what Dalia was saying, we asked folks, um, what role does journalism play in creating systems that honor Black life? Because I think with 2020, folks started moving the needle a little bit around like, oh, we can kind of say like Black Lives Matter now, like how can we be allies? How can we be supportive? But But here we really wanted to push it and be like, what role does journalism play in building those systems? Like what role is your journalism playing in keeping black folks safe and getting them the information they need and like telling the stories that they want to hear? So that's a lot of what we've heard from folks here and with all my other colleagues at News Voices, too. Yeah, just like switching into uh, journalism full time uh, from doing electoral organizing and, you know, talking smack on my podcast like that was like a really amazing you know, transition for me to be able to be in this space and to also have 
I mean, the opportunity to work with the folks that I've worked with, right? Because thankfully, this shift into journalism as someone, you know, I'm a retired attorney. I've worked with, you know, some national organizations on some things. uh, And I raised these two knucklehead teenagers over here. So like, you know, not having the traditional background and having that received and respected by folks that I've worked with, um, again, like Sierra and folks at Scalawag, you know, PRISM brought me on back in December 2019 um, as the electoral justice staff reporter, I don't know that anyone has an electoral justice beat. Um, And through that process of, I learned a lot about what it means to create new spaces in something that's a defined thing. It's very challenging, Um, particularly when people are not all clear on, you know, not just what, you know, something means because words sound great. And this is no diss, you know, to the, to the folks over there, but like things sound really good on paper, but just like, what does it mean to build something brand new and also to build off of a concept that people may not be as familiar with. And so when you're thinking about electoral justice, uh, which is a term of art that is used in very different contexts, depending upon which bodies you're talking to, because you're thinking about like the international community in the UN, you know, electoral justice just simply translates to like issues around voting or access to elections. And when you're thinking about, you know, the way that it's grown out of with the work of Jessica Bird and uh, Rakia Lumumba and so many other folks with uh, the movement for Black Lives, like it has a very different um, framing, right? And so, um, and and that's kind of where like my my education influence and like how I've shaped my own political, you know, lens around how we approach electoral work. And so I'm interested in talking to organizers about how they are building capacity in so-called, you know, red states uh, with constituencies that are traditionally overlooked, right? So like, I was really thankful to do work with the appeal post-election, looking at Ohio, blue, Ohio didn't go blue or whatever. That's nonsense. But at the same time, you had some major down ballot wins that were overlooked because people were so focused on whether or not it flipped one way or another in the presidential election cycle, right? So, I mean, I see like that was a real clear opportunity point for me in 2020. And I really do appreciate a large part, a lot of black women editors, you know, several black women editors who really like made space for me um, and allowed me to help tell stories in a way that most people do not tell them or talk about issues. You know, a uh, uh, shout out to Kirsten West Savali. Like when she was at Essence, she let me come talk about culture and organizing and how culture is so important. And it's not just, I got hot sauce in my swag bag. It's like, we going to shake our booties to the polls because this is like real and and, and, and we're, we're really doing this because these are the people that we're trying to talk to, right? And so like having these conversations, lifting up and seeing the value in stories. And I really do appreciate folks because even if they didn't necessarily understand entirely the issue, but like trusting in me to bring out that story. And so like, I mean, that's a real blessing. And so I appreciate Freelancing is a struggle, but at the same time, I do appreciate being able to carve out these spaces and have these conversations. I mean, and just the development and then having people make convert, you know, introductions to other people so that I can continue to have work. And so, like, we talk a lot about about the grace and the work of Black women and organizing 
in general. I just feel like if we treat journalism as its own little or movement journalism as its own organizing universe, we have a lot of that same grace that happens with black women in particular, other black folks too, and other folks of color as well, you know, not leaving nobody out. But I mean, really, when I think back the last several months, like, you know, black women have really made space and paved the way. And it's not a competitive thing. It's not, oh, you also write and you black and conscious. So I can't put you on type of mm. thing. Like I have appreciated so much that people understand that we all have our lanes and opportunities in the space. So when we're thinking about like 2020 as a whole, I also think the pandemic, even though it was a craptastic and still is a craptastic experience, I'm trying not to use explicit language people. So I'm doing, I'm doing my best over here, but like I, it opened up new ways of us being able to tell stories that I don't think people would have been as readily accessible or readily, you know, willing to accept, right? Um, because literally everyone got knocked back by the pandemic one way or another. Uh, and so I think the pandemic itself, you know, COVID-19 opened up a doorway. And then I think COVID-19 and then the frustration, and then by the time we get to the uprisings, really created more of a space for having a conversations so that where I might've had challenge expressing to someone why talking about mutual aid in early March actually related to democracy and politics, you know, by the time you're getting to the fall, folks, mutual aid is a buzzword now. Right. Mm -hmm. And so so I really just do think that, you know, when we're thinking about 2020. Um, I mean, and we're still experiencing a living very much of what happened in 2020 now. But like, I think 2020 just opened up the opportunity to talk about so much of that was wrong in the United States and what we could be doing as an alternative or just putting out the the alternative narrative and not even worrying about having to debunk, you know, or, 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 or waste time discussing what was going wrong. Just like, this is what we need to be doing instead. Um, and so, so I just think that there was a lot of that in 2020 in particular. Yeah. Um, anytime I get in a conversation with y'all, I'm just like, there's just no reason why y'all are not my favorite. Like it's the range, the analysis, the skin, the quality of work. It's always top tier. Um, I wanted to bring us to some tropes we're tired of and then a little bit of dreaming before we uh, go to audience questions. Um, I wanted to ask, what is the journalism trope that you're hoping stays in 2020? Um, it's probably trying to sneak into 2021, but we won't push it back. Um, I'll start off with... I despise when journalists start coverage at the catalyst and not the background. So every story about George Floyd began in Minneapolis on May 28th. No context on any organizing that's happened in that city. No context on the redlining, the immigrant community in that city, the nature of Minnesota as a state. Um, journalists who were just like, a black man was killed, who knew? police violence, right? If you are not invested in bringing that historical context to the work you're writing, then just don't, right? Just, I, I just truly wish that like people would invest the time into doing just a, a brief Google search about why things happen the way they do. Um, nothing happens in a vacuum. So I, I really wish that more journalists, black, white, whatever, um, were just doing more intensive research into um, how these moments of systematic collapse happen. Um, and I'll start off with Dali. Thank you so much. Cause I actually wanted to like touch on the point you just made about George Floyd. Like 
also even thinking about his um, his connection to like Fort Bend County, right, um, in Texas, and kind of like the history of like that particular county and kind of what was happening before, you know, we even get like up, you know, north, I guess kind of north because I'm south, I guess, um, <laughs> in the country. But also um, I think one trope that I uh, wanted to think, well, just get rid of altogether is like this reckoning that newsrooms are happening like in their coverage, but not necessarily like the the work to do anti-racism work in their actual newsroom. So like we have our one black reporter who we got to write this personal essay, um, but we did not take any training. None of us don't even like, we don't even know what abolition means in this newsroom. Um, So I really want to get rid of that trope of just like half-assing shit. And then also the trope of like these organizations who claim that they're actually doing things in this industry to reckon with a lot of shit, but getting money and like, you know what I mean? And like making sure that they point out their coverage. And it's like, it's a lot of people, I, I'm a throw shade before I get off, but it's a lot of people giving money to certain organizations here in Texas who have historically abused, misused um, uh, black women within their newsroom. But it's so I'm, irritating to see like people tweet, <laughs> like, what? <laughs> My Indian kids. <laughs> It's so irritating to see a tweet like, you know, from another person of color being like, oh, they're doing the work. And it's like, sis, no, they're not actually. It's it's really bad there. You just don't know that. Right. Um, Sierra, Anoa, and then Diamond. What are you leaving in 2020? That's exactly what I was going to leave in 2020 (laughs) is what Dalia just said. Like, no, uh, if I'm just I'm I'm literally when people say we're anti-racist, I'm just going to start asking them where the well, what does anti-racism mean to you? Where are the documents and like where like what? Because I mean, I I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, like, I think Scalawag is actually an anti-racist organization. And I don't think that there's one way to do it. But I The reason that I say that is because I know that every member of our team is actively working to divest from systems of oppression within themselves Mm -hmm. and external to us as well. And so that to me is just like step one. So I don't understand how folks can say like we're an anti-racist news organization when the people that work in your newsroom are racist. That doesn't, that's not how that, that, the math doesn't add up there. The call is coming um, from inside the house. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and so I definitely want us to, I, I'm not saying we can't all be working toward that. Um, I definitely want us to be making those moves, but like anti-racism can't be a value if you're not living it out every day. Um, and so like, let's definitely um, cut that out. Uh, and I think aligned to that, um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to hear folks saying like they can't find qualified, uh, journalists of color to work within their newsrooms. I don't, that it, like, I think it is hard to hire folks, period. Um, and it is going to be harder because of the systems that exist to find and hire um, journalists of color. So when you say that, what I actually hear is like, I'm not willing to do the work to find the people who I say that I want to hire. Um, and if that's the case, just say that. Um, so that is, those are the two things that I hope we can just cut. Anoa. 
Yeah, so I'm a cheat and do two. Um, the first is I'm tired of people thinking that to be, you know, to be like reporting or doing politics or anything like relevant, you have to be in New York or DC and sometimes LA. Like there is more to the world besides New York, DC, and LA, and you're not paying enough for people to live there. Let's just be real. I I'm a whole grown up, I'm a whole grown up with student loans and kids and I cannot afford to do what you talk, which I mean, like, right. Like, I mean, but they, these are the same people who think unpaid internships are paying your dues or whatever. <laughs> Bring the conversation into the room. <laughs> but, but the other thing, which actually ties right into this one, the reason why I said I wanted to do two was, and maybe think of something that happened to Scalawag when I was, you know, when we were partnering this, this, this fall, um, I'm tired of white, mediocre, particularly men journalists who think they own the market on every issue under the sun and will speak down, talk down, dunk on during Newsmatch organizations like Scalawag that are doing work um, that is dispelling like these notions. I mean, so just real quickly, what happened, we, I think it was a series of tweets either about an article or, or one of the videos in our series. And, you know, someone related, connected with Neiman um, quote tweeted it. And it was like, well, actually y'all are wrong because no, it was the white people in the suburbs that saved Georgia and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, hi, you're relying on debunked analysis that was rushed because the New York Times, whoever wrote that was rushing to make a point. You don't know what you're talking about. We're actual Southern journalists. Georgia. And I am actually in Georgia and actually talking with folks and taking time to go through like polls and that. So it actually made for a good segment for another video about like the influence of data um, and, and how like data matters, but the interpretation and narrative that people put on data as a spin equally matters. So, I mean, those are the two things that I would leave behind because like we see so much of that and we also, there's so much gatekeeping, right? Um, I mean, for whiteness generally, but we also have a lot of these white men, whether it's people talking about uh, why COVID vaccinations are happening a certain way and they have no background epidemiology. They just happen to run a site that does some stuff about statistics and they've been wrong about elections the last four years. I mean, it's just like tons of stuff. Um, So, but those are two things like you know, having acting as if journalism has to be in New York, D.C. or L.A., as if there's nobody else um, anywhere else in the country, no place else that people can be based, particularly as we've proved over the past year that remote work uh, is work and it works. Um, and we uh, and then just like having people position themselves as uh, experts, even of our experience, even of experience that's not theirs. Um, I love that that issue shows up in every corner of journalism, particularly I'm thinking about music journalism, um, cultural criticism, where uh, as soon as an artist comes out from jail or releases an album, there's a hipster white boy writing a 5,000 word profile on him. And you're like, so you're going to write about the baby from Wisconsin? Okay, cool. Um, Diamond, what are the tropes you're trying to leave in 2020? Yeah, I, I love all of that. And the, the trope I'm trying to leave behind is journalism being used as a tool for the surveillance state. So if we're talking about like platforms that are profiting off of black and brown bodies, if we're talking about the way that policing and the uprising is or police are centered in the way that we talk about uprisings, um, if we're talking about the crime beat, I want I want it all. Like anywhere we can find it, I want it gone. <laughs> and I, I 
I want us to stop being complicit in helping um, put black and brown bodies in danger. And by us, I don't mean us. So <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I feel like somewhere I'm hearing Alicia whisper the word um, media ecosystem somewhere. Just be like media ecosystems. Um, Because that is so much a big part of like how we understand media um, and the ways that we see these patterns repeated in politics and crime and cultural criticism and music journalism um, so frequently. Um, I want to ask us before we go to audience questions, um, what are the radical dreams you are hoping to see in 2021 and beyond? Um, I'll give folks a minute to sit with that. my immediate thought when I like brought up this answer in my brain was community journalism. Um, there is a really great project in Atlanta that did a piece on the water bottle boys in Atlanta um, who are really being targeted by Keisha Lance Bottoms and her corrupt city council um, for uh, like black boys that are out of school don't have summer resources um, and are hustling and are making their money, um, but who are putting a bad stain on the city from their view of it. Um, And Canopy did a great piece um, from their actual West End fellows, all residents who live in the West End, um, about the water bottle boys, the policing that they're going through. Um, And I would just love more journalism from people in those communities about what they're going through. and yeah, I, I think that's what I want. Uh, I'm tired of helicopter journalism, folks flying in from New York to write about communities that they don't know or understand. Please stay in New York. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, I will go to Delia. What is the dream you're hoping for 2021? I was surely hoping you would not choose me first. Um, so I think the the dream I'm wanting to see more of is folks writing and telling stories of their own communities more. Not only like community storytelling, but also having folks from those particular communities um, produce that, or at least having newsrooms give them the platform in order to to voice any of the concerns. And so like, even with the project we're working on, that's that's kind of like the hope is like, we're, we're not only gonna provide you news, but we're gonna provide you the skills in case you kind of want to, to be the voice in your community or to help highlight voices in your community. Oh, do we want to popcorn this? Uh, Diamond. I was laughing. I think you said my name. I couldn't hear you over my own laughter. Um, But I think the radical dream, um, I can hear Alicia whispering in my ear now too. Um, But the radical dream, I think, is is ripping off of both of what you already said around community-centered journalism and making sure that we're valuing people's experience as a form of expertise and not acting as if that's like um, tainting the journalism or for some reason not making it as valuable, but like valuing the people who live these experiences, understand the problems and therefore also know the solutions and what they need as a community. And I think like to even build on top of that, my dream is that we expand this idea of journalism into a broader media ecosystem about who's providing information in the community. So I think we touched on this earlier, but organizers, like service providers, folks that are working with folks that just got released on bail, like bail projects, they are sharing information with communities 
and they're keeping people safe, giving them critical information. So my radical dream was that it would be that we would loop in and understand and broaden and strengthen those information ecosystems. Um, so at the end of the day that we can all have the news and info that we want and the stories that we need. And I'll pass it to Sierra. <laughs> Um, my dream is a selfish one, um, but I hope it benefits, uh, as many, um, black women, um, black femmes and trans folks in particular. Um, I just hope that we get rest, um, and that we get investments and not investments, uh, for our results, investments for our ideas that we have, um, you know, we didn't choose the system. Like I would rather not live under racial capitalism, but here we are. Um, so that means that we need capital so that we have the capacity to not only grow our organizations, but also to like imagine like thinking takes time. Um, and we don't really have a lot of time because we are trying to scramble to make sure that we can make payroll and that our folks have what they need. Um, so it would be really great. Um, there might be some funders on this call. It would be really great that if y'all brought that same energy that you bring to these white led newsrooms to us, um, and that you let us sit around and think, because if you gave us some time to think, we would really come up with something. Like you want to talk about solutions being made, like solutions would be had. Um, and so that is really, really what I'm hoping for because we deserve it. I know I saw you there. Um, wow, you make me follow Sierra. Sierra said everything, so I'll just say ditto. I mean, I, I just would also just ask, I guess, a radical, and this, this stuff shouldn't be radical, though, right? Like, I mean, I guess my radical dream is that the things that we think are radical wouldn't be radical, but I would also ask for this space to actually, like, envision and build projects, um, and if we could set aside some of the internalized white supremacy and paternalistic approaches to journalism that, you know, again, like as someone who is self-taught and coming into space, really thankful for people who've helped me structure and improve over the way, like over the past couple of years, but like to still be in so-called progressive or, you know, to the extent liberal spaces or whatever, like spaces where it should be better. There's so much that we've internalized and brought into those spaces between from like traditional way things operate. That's very damaging and it hampers um, the opportunity to grow and develop unless you fit a particular mold. So young, single, without any real responsibilities financially or otherwise. And I do think that if we want to make sure that we have opportunities for a multitude of voices to come to conversations, we need to, like, you know, Sarah was saying, have capital to be able to compensate people to be able to do this. But also, I think we need to step aside and as part of that investing is also like a little bit of what does it mean to step aside and help someone develop like a process or understand what the process is instead of just telling them, well, you just don't understand this because you don't have this background. Like that's just like the most condescending and like negative thing that could really like sideline the next great thing from happening. Right. Um, and, and it's also about having access to the spaces where the resources are being given out because there are some, you know, 
know, conversations. There are some uh, workshops and things of that nature, offers to mentor. But if you're not already in a particular circle, that you wouldn't even know any of that even existed. You wouldn't even know the possibility. Um, and so uh, for me, I just, you know, I guess my radical dream is just, you know, helping people turn what they, you know, um, and their wildest imaginations actually be possible. And all the things we're talking about is radical. This be considered as another thing that's possible. Yeah. Yeah. It's making me think about what would a media industry look like that was accessible, um, that actually met people where they were at and where black journalists specifically were invested in. Cause I think so many like, you know, positions I see, I'm like, Oh, I don't have three to five years of editing experience, but I know some white boy who probably has less than that <laughs> is probably going to apply for it. But for some of us, like we need that investment um, and we're looking for that actively, but we just are not in those spaces where um, those spaces exist. Um, Want to take us to our first audience question. Um, and that is around, uh, I also want to clarify the podcast and book I mentioned is The View From Somewhere by Lewis Wallace um, on Spotify and the book is available online. Um, how can journalism schools catch up with this new wave of unpacking objectivity? Um, I think can that's I, a really important question. Go ahead, Julia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, so I don't I don't think that there's like a quick answer to that. <laughs> um, I mean, like like anything else, like it's going to take time. Um, but also, I think like, for example, so one of the schools that we partner with for this whole project is Houston Tillotson, right? They have um, a journalism program. But when you compare it to like a university of like Texas, right, it's not as robust, right? Or they don't have access to particular um, types of resources around like learning about gen- journalism. So I think that like we have to think about this systemically, right, and, and invest in infrastructures or institutions that actually teach people how to do journalism, but making sure that those institutions too actually actually have like like black indigenous and like communities of color actually attending you know what i mean wait like within these spaces um as well like um Zakaria who i mentioned earlier she's like she's so great and she went to the journalism school at Houston Tillotson but now she's getting her grad degree at um UT right and so it's like it, you shouldn't as an HBCU student you shouldn't have to go to another school right to to kind of compensate for the things that you did not learn within your particular program or institution and i also think that like just journalism schools in general need to do a better job of like either pairing together and working together or like some type of collaborative effort, right? I still do not think that there is a reason why any of the HBCUs here who do have journalism programs shouldn't be collaborating together or ta- like or doing some type of investigative program for the students here. It's like we have the resources in order or in order to actually connect, but then that also helps build a pipeline to um, particular newsrooms in the state. So. Yeah, I actually wanted to tap into this. Um, I went to Spelman, but I took all of my journalism classes at Morehouse. Um, and I butted heads with the journalism professor at Morehouse every class, every class. Um, we had active beef, um, mainly because like I was, you know, an organizer. I was a student. I was like, I'm out here in the streets. I don't really care about talking to cops in my reporting. Um So even though I was trained up in that, I also really wish more professors um, invested in learning about like, what does it mean to undo objectivity and also to like shift some ideas around 
working for like legacy publications. Um, I think that was the hardest thing about being in that space was like, my professor was like, you want to work for Washington Post, you want to work for these major publications. And then I'm also sitting with the fact that like, the New York Times ran that Trump ad against Central Park Five. I don't know if I want to work for a publication that actively put five innocent black boys in jail. I don't know how that how that plays with my, my own politics. Um, and that is something that is going to become frequent in, in J schools and even in, in undergraduate programs, specifically um, HBCUs. Um, I'm looking at NABJ. You know, we've got to have that conversation. I'm a member of NABJ, but also it is a very conservative space. Um, and there are a lot of black trans and queer journalists who don't feel safe in, in a place like NABJ. Um, and I think of folks like Travell, um, who really put a lot of work into building out the um, task force there. But uh, yeah, there, there's got to be a radical shift with black journalists um, about how we understand this term um, and how we do better about our coverage. And, and sorry not to take up too much more space, but I was going to also say that professors are white as hell, too. Like, there needs to be a staffing change. It, I taught one semester at UT, y'all. Do you know how many people, specifically brown and black folks, who were like, I'm not even in your class, but I wanted to stop by because I saw you teaching in this room. Like, you know, as, as big of a university of, as UT is, that even yeah. shouldn't even be a conversation in the first place. So, yeah. And I'll just, like, very quickly add... Um, you know, I think another push for um, journalism schools to make some type of shift is that, like, you really don't actually have to go to journalism school to work in journalism. Um, and every day people are committing acts of journalism without having any journalistic training. Um, I am literally running a newsroom and I didn't go to journalism school. So... Um, it would behoove us uh, and behoove the school's journalism for their own survival to think about how, yeah, the world around them is changing and like what role do they actually want to be playing in the future? Um, and I think this is a larger message for the whole industry of like, we can't just keep fighting for what used to exist to still exist. Like everybody needs to reimagine the role um, and understand how things are shifting around us. Yeah. And I just want to hop in really quickly to one second that I did not go to journalism school, but I'm organizing with folks that are thinking about how media impacts them. Um, but also with media 2070 and the way that it lays out, the history of harm and looking at these systems and the ways that that systems move. I think that that's also something that needs to be happening in these schools when we're talking about how do we get on the ball around objectivity, because objectivity is rooted in upholding a racial like white hierarchy. So when we're talking about dismantling that, we need to know the history and we need to know that the role that you'll be stepping into and in the industry that will be a part of it, like understanding your relation to it and understanding the power that is associated with it now and historically and how to think about like shifting that power um, and using it to service different people than it has been in the past. I will just um, add, chime in as another person who doesn't have a traditional J school background. Um, but just even just thinking about like, how do we shift schools of thought in this conversation around objectivity? I mean, objectivity is a big deal in the law, right? And I just think back to law school and my first year crim law class, I had this professor 
who in talking about objective standards and what was reasonable was really insistent on having the class. And I went to law school at West Virginia University. So in West Virginia, um, we probably had the largest black class at like 16 people in a class of about 150 um, in their more recent history. And so like, but we, we would go through these exercises of each case briefing of like envisioning, you know, what does this, what does it tell you about someone if they have a pit bull? Not a damn thing. They like dogs. Um, but like we would go through things like this with our different cases, right? And this was his way of teaching us about objective standards and reasonableness. And I'm like, no, you're teaching us that it's okay to stereotype people and be biased as hell. And by the time you get to, if you're in law school, by the time you get to criminal procedure in your second or third year and you're reading, you know, deep, uh, you know, Supreme Court jurisprudence and reading some of your fave stance on, you know, uh, stop and frisk and things of that nature. And you are appalled to hear, you know, your liberal fave in the Supreme Court say things like, oh, it's totally reasonable for Washington, D.C. police to stop black men in a really nice car at 3 a.m. because they're black men and that neighborhood has a lot of crime. So like, it's not just in journalism that we have this problem. And some of the ways, I think to Delia's point as well about like, having other perspectives in the classroom. And I hate when we talk about like diversity of thought. No, bringing in like actual people who have a particular level of consciousness and understanding of how these issues, you know, are actually manifesting and coloring the way people are approaching issues is super important. But also, I mean, there's a lot that we can do through the process of like seminars, whether they are actually seminar courses or even like the programming, right? I think it's the Newmark School attached to CUNY seems to do a good job of trying to bring more programming in that's not just for like, you know, their community side, because sometimes the really cool programming will be open to the community or the public, but not necessarily for students to count for anything. Because when you're a student, you don't want to take anything that's not going to count. Let's just be real. Right. Um, so just so so just bringing in these new approaches and understanding. Um, I also did some work with uh, Professor uh, Dr. Anita Varma from Santa Clara last year around. She talks about solidarity journalism. And she does these workshops and trainings with students and stuff. So bringing people into, you know, your school to do these conversations. I mean, schools do them all the time. They bring people guest lecturers in, things of that nature. So there are quite a few ways that I agree that this is not a quick fix. I mean, you know, this is deeply seated and rooted in, you know, the, the industry itself. But there are some ways that you at least provide uh, students with, you know, an an idea of what else is possible, what else exists out there um, for conversations to to help prepare them moving forward. And I think newsrooms should also consider engaging in some of these spaces as well. And and to add to that, and should be doing like free trainings and actually mentoring people and actually working outside of their newsroom to like actually educate their communities. That's so important. Yeah. Um, before we hop to our next question, I think some, I just wanted to highlight um, the importance of like just skill sharing and community. Um, something I really, really enjoy about just media is having our uprising fellows learn basic like journalism skills. A lot of these folks aren't journalism students. They just want to start freelancing. Uh, and very similarly, a lot of us don't got free time to just do unpaid internships. Um, and getting those skills out there and having folks have their politic connect to their work and report on their communities. Um, we recently had one of our fellows write for PRISM um, about Austin PD. Um, and yeah, I just I just am really proud to see young people being like, oh, I actually don't have to go to those mainstream sites of knowledge in order to be a journalist and in order to have community needs be heard. Um, yeah. 
Okay. Want to take us to the next question, which is Jordan Levy asks, as rough as newsrooms are, it seems like the podcasting space is even wider. Correct. Any, any thoughts on tropes, issues, solutions in podcasting? What does a movement podcast look like? Um, I'll add super quickly that this question made me think about um, the work that Brittany Luce and Eric Eddings did at The Nod um, with the Gimlet Media Union. Um, so, yeah, deeply thinking about their struggle there um, and the recent reckoning that uh, I don't know if it's a reckoning, but people like to drop apologies um, and make podcasts about racial reckoning, but don't really be doing it. Um with Reply All. Um, so I wanted to talk about what would a movement podcast look like? What would that space be? Um, I do want to jump in before I know, because I want to hear what Noah got to say about this. <clears throat> but I do want to jump in and say that, like, I don't think that the podcasting space is white. I think that there are large platforms that are very, very white. If if we've learned anything about podcasting is that it's it's given folks of color, black folks, indigenous folks, like agency in a way, in a platform in a way that it has like other mediums haven't really done like historically. Um, but I think that when we're talking about like a Gimlet or we're talking about like other big mainstream, you know, organizations that have giant platforms, they're very, very white. Same thing with NPR. They 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 produce some great podcasts, but they need to do better. Like they just need to do better overall. So, yeah. I also want to make a quick plug. Um, Amy Westervelt does a really great podcast called Drilled. Uh, she also has a podcast called Hot Take about environmental racism that has like some of the best investigative reporting on environmental racism that mm. I've heard. Um, and it still is like a go to for me when it comes to like understanding just the long legacy of environmental racism, specifically in the South. Um, and yeah, I hope all the big oil companies fall because they're terrible. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I want to start off with a Noah on this. Um, so I will take the, I mean, Delia, I think was spot is spot on with about, you know, is it wider? I think what's considered successful, popular, I mean, you know, no, most black folks who just talk smack on the internet are not making what $10,000 a month or whatever as, you know, a white dude, bro, progressive, um, you know, trying to, you know, make fun of like move and other things happening. Right. Like, I mean, I mean, I'm just going to put it out there. I I think the progressive, like what progressives tend to look at as their go to podcast. And I think this is not just a progressive issue. I mean, it's a it's a people issue. Right. Folks gravitate to what already has backing support, production quality, uh, platform access to get their message out. That's understandable. But if we would take a step back and actually take time to invest and build with smaller creators, like myself, um, I I mean, really, again, like the, the work that I did with Scalawag, even though that wasn't podcast form, um, you know, the videos and stuff, but just really taking the time to learn more about since that time production, because that's something that unless you have that type of experience, that techno experience, and if you're busy, if you're working, if you're also, if you're organizing, if you're doing all these other things and you got to take care of people, you don't necessarily have time to learn how to be a master video audio editor, et cetera. Um, even just pulling together the money that it takes to be, you know, a small independent person to have the equipment. To, to, to make sure you sound right, right? Like, I remember when I first started, I supposed to be like, your sound. I'm like, okay, cool. You gonna drop $200 for a microphone? Cause I don't have it. <laughs> um, but at the same time, like I've learned so much because people have taken a, 
taking an interest in and saying like, hey, I like what you're trying to do. Let's see how we can help you do and be better. But we need so much more of that because we need more people out here, um, you know, engaging and building and crafting narratives and telling stories. And podcasts are an amazing way to do that. Um, I think that there are just so many different types and ways to approach conversations. And so there's also this idea that to be successful, you have to fit a particular model or do things a certain way or follow a particular, um, you know, flow when we really need to have, I think, an appreciation or opening to like tell stories in different ways and venues. Um, and so I think a movement podcast, I mean, just like we're talking about movement journalism, I think everyone would have to define that. So like with the way with Anoa, which because of work and health issues has been, you know, sporadic the past, I think year pretty much, um, is, you know, when I first started doing that, I kind of just stumbled into podcasting. I didn't intend to podcast. I had always wanted to, but I never dared to dream and think that little old me, mild-mannered at the time, soccer, football mom, uh, attorney could actually, like people would actually care what I had to say, but I would co-host for someone else. Um, and they did a video live stream on YouTube and they did a podcast. And finally he was like, okay, girl, you're getting your own show. Um, you just take this first hour. That's you, you on YouTube. And you know, by the way, you might as well just rip the audio. There you go. Podcast. And so like, so I just kind of like ended up out there, but I didn't have a team. I didn't know anything about production. I just knew that I could talk, uh, you know, straight for almost an hour about anything that was relevant to what was going on in the current news. So really learning more over the past year about how to structure conversations, how to have narratives. My tagline was good conversations with good people doing good work. Cause my thing was always about, I just want to have conversations, whether it's folks who are progressive candidates running for office, whether it's folks who are in organizing space or doing work. I have like an old podcast episode. I've interviewed my parents because they've been organizers engaged in spaces. Like I have one where actually I tricked my dad because he wouldn't get on my podcast at first, but I asked his permission before I put it up, but we go in and out. I also, I'm really into sci-fi and popular culture and stuff too. So I have conversations with, you know, folks about like weaving in and out between politics and those things. So, I mean, I think a movement podcast would look like something that's authentic in terms of your relationship, whoever the host is with actual movements. I mean, if you're just someone who's curious and interested and would like to provide space and platform, that's absolutely dope, right? Like I hate when people call me like an on the ground or frontline organizer. I try to correct folks as much as possible because that's never been my role. Like I'm a narrative person, right? Like I like to uplift the stories of folks doing like actual work. And that is work itself. It's just not the same as folks who are organizing actions and directly on the ground, right? Like it's a very different thing. And I take that very seriously to not misrepresent myself. And so if you're thinking about like doing like a movement, you know, I mean, I think it's also internal to the the culture of the podcast to the production to how you're building your audience, um, building your following, whether you're on Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, TikTok, wherever. I mean, I think those are all like values and considerations. Like, are you aligned with the values of the movements that you're trying to represent and uplift? Like same thing we're thinking about when we're talking about movement journalism. I mean, apply to the idea of having like a movement podcast, but, um, or are you just trying to like have another thing so you can like get big and like, you know, maybe get picked up by some t- somebody's distributor. Like I like to think of it like being um, a rapper, right? Who's an independent rapper who might not be like as popular or well-known as 
whomever I'm, I'm, I'm approaching 40. So I might not be as in tune with folks about who's hit and, and popping right now. But like, um, I feel like my parents, but, uh, but I just feel like sometimes it's like, or it's like that cool DJ that only like certain people know, not everybody knows. Like that's how I, I kind of feel sometimes. Um, but I think it's just really important and valuable that we take into consideration the values that we are saying that we're aligning with the movements we're saying we're aligning with and how we're crafting and telling those stories. And are we providing like adequate space and are, are we as individuals, like as hosts or as the staff and crew, are we like really living in a way that aligns with that? Because if we're talking about, if we're using and throwing out terms like movement with the work that we're doing, like that isn't just like, okay, I'm on for this hour or 30 minutes I'm recording and now I'm back on my bullshit like every other rest of the time, right? And I think we really need to think about how we're crafting narratives and stories, particularly when we're talking about like spaces that are white led, regardless of what you think your politics are, we all need to do that self-work in terms of internalized white supremacy and white people need to do that like double time. Um, so like I, but I think there's a lot of opportunity and space out there. Um, I, I try to stay away from like the cult of personality stuff because it's not about you. Like I think having an Ella Baker movement approach to leadership applies in the same way we're thinking about being hosts, right? Like you were just simply like a vessel, right? Like you were just simply there to help make sure the story is told. Sure. It's great that people like you and they want to listen to what you have to say. Awesome. But it's not like totally just the you show it's about the movement or the issues of people that you're trying to talk to and build with or the narratives you're trying to help get across. So like, you know, grounding the value, the purpose and the focus of what you're producing in something other than like your own personal, you know, your own personality and identity. I think it's also, um, I say this as someone who has a podcast called the way with Anoa, which is a really interesting story in of itself, but <laughs> Um, it's not about my way. It's just, you know, helping people find their way. Yeah. Uh, so I'll kick it back over to you, Clarissa. Um, I'm forgetting the quote fully, but uh, yeah, people don't need charming leaders, right? They need like to trust themselves and trust their experiences. Um, I think that's important. I'll take us to our last question before we close out. Um, and it is building community media literacy through real reporting is something I wasn't explicitly thinking about before. Could you all expand on that a bit more? Um, I'm gonna go to Delia and Diamond um, for this one. I did want to add, I do think something that is important to this. I often think about organizers and uh, media literacy. Um, often most organizers are like, mm, I'm not talking to reporters, they're cops, which they're not wrong. A lot of reporters do move like cops, but um, I often am thinking about what does it mean for an organizer to like know what on background means for them to know like these terminologies and better understand how their words are gonna be used. And also for them to know if they are being misrepresented in their work to make sure that's clear to other organizations of like, hey, don't mess with these with this reporter or this publication because they're going to misrepresent us. Um, and that, again, being a part of that media ecosystem. So organizers know we're only talking to publications that will authentically show what we're about in its truest form and not a blurb from a three hour conversation we had where you make it look like, you know, my, my politics are different than what they say they are. Um, and I'll kick it to Diamond. Word, Clarissa. That was actually exactly what I was going to mention on and touch on. Because similarly, when we were talking about the ways that Black folks in Colorado felt about the reporting that was going on on the uprisings, there was also a question around like student activists and how they had a hold on how does the media work? Like, 
how do I talk to folks when my story gets misrepresented or when you come down for one quote and it's not fully, it's not contextualized. And how do we rational that? How do we think about it on beforehand? How do we think about it on the back end? And so that's a lot of what we're thinking about here. Um, and I just also want to plug into that as well around sometimes when I hear the word like media literacy, there's a lot of elitism and like classism that's going on around like, Folks just don't know what they're looking for. And instead of like changing what we're doing so that it's accessible to the people that we actually wanted to reach. So I just want to plug that in there too, around like the way that we center community. It's about like, who do you serve? Who is your work for? Um, and, and that's really what we're trying to do when we're thinking about how are we using community organizing tactics to build power and like share narratives and share stories. But I'll pass it to Delia too. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing that up, uh, Diamond, because like that's something that we actually recently put on a flyer um, that we're doing like for our community journalism training. And that was something that just kind of struck me, too. I was like, this kind of makes it sound like I don't think that they know, you know, anything like. <laughs> and so just kind of thinking about that, like kind of moving forward and kind of what does media literacy look like? What like, you know, what does that even entail? But I'm also like. You know, when we were talking about tropes earlier, I should have said, like, I'm so sick of, like, especially white-led newsrooms talking about we need to connect to the community more or we need to engage with a particular community more um, because a lot of newsrooms aren't even ready to teach folks what journalism is. They've done so well at gatekeeping. They've elbowed everybody out, and now they're surprised that nobody trusts them. How the hell do you expect somebody to trust you when they don't even know what the hell you do, right? And so that's kind of what we're doing with, like, a lot of the community training that we're doing now is, like, how, how do you reach out to a reporter? Um, what terminology do you need to know when you're talking to that reporter? And what tools do you have in your basket to protect yourself from that particular reporter? You, you know, yes, you may have like a great relationship with this particular reporter or newsroom, but at the end of the day, you're going based solely off of trust, right? There isn't a protocol. There isn't like an ethics that like every single newsroom is going to align to. So how can you equip people with that information? But then also um, community storytelling, right? By me teaching you how to do community storytelling, storytelling, you can either do that yourself or you understand the, the amount of work, me as a reporter, that I have to put into this <laughs> particular piece or, or particular, um, you know, uh, episode with it. You know, I, I just feel like people have way more patience with like reporters and newsrooms when they understand how news is actually made. So. Oh, the gems. Go ahead, Diana. Yeah, I was just going to second that, too, because News Voices also works on the other side of that. So it's like, as a reporter, if you're talking about centering community and engagement as like a process, not a project or a practice, it's like, what are you doing when you're meeting with people? Are you telling folks like, what does this mean? Are you using, are you using terminology that folks don't understand unless they went to J school? So I think there's like the two sides of it, of like being able to prepare yourself when you're interacting, but also like your duty as someone that wants to tell stories and wants to be in service of people. What are you doing to make sure that your process is transparent? And like, what are newsrooms also doing to make sure that their process is transparent for people? Yeah, and I, and I do want to uh, add to that. Sorry, uh, again, Clarissa. <laughs> um, it, it, you know, it just kind of pisses me off because uh, Noah actually alluded to this earlier when newsrooms always talk about, or it was either Sierra or Noah who's talked about like, newsrooms say they can't find a particular reporter or like a particular demographic that they want to feel like, you know what I mean, within their newsroom. And it's like, how do you expect the community to even want to contribute to the news if they don't even know like what that looks like in the first place? 
So I just kind of want to add that bit. Oh, goodness. Well, we are at 10 minutes before we close out. I wanted, lastly, for everybody to just do a go around on where folks can find you, where they can find your work. Um, I did see a question about the environmental podcast. The podcast I mentioned is called Drilled. Um, it's created by Amy Westervelt, and she co-hosts another podcast called The Hot Take um, with Mary Wegler. I could be saying that name wrong, but Google Amy Westervelt. She has a plethora of like some of the best environmental um reported like ever um also amy's i think that uh not amy it was mary i think mary's a stallion too so you know support black stallions i'm just gonna put that up um first thing you want to start off with <laughs> anoa where can folks find you where can your work be discovered Awesome. Thank you so much for having me a part of this conversation. And y'all are brilliant. And it is always an honor and a joy to be with you. And shout out to Haymarket for hosting this little ditty or ours, right? Like you just gave us a, a meetup that we didn't have to schedule ourselves. So thank you. Um, so you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at the way with Anoa, um, the way with A and uh, and then there's a link. I won't waste my time spelling it out for you, but there's a link to my link tree that has a bunch of links to you know, articles and other stuff going on and other panels like this that I've done or am doing. Um, and hopefully my teenager will get my website. <laughs> so it'll all be there too. But I just, I mean, you can check out also the As the South Votes if you wanted to see the the coverage and what we did. Um, it's scalawagmagazine.org slash votes. Um, that was part of my sign off. So, you know, <laughs> yes, I had it memorized, but you can check out uh, the, also the podcast, the way of know at least uh, episodes, there should be more coming this spring, um, but you can check out previous episodes on um, Simplecast or Apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. So Spotify. Yeah. Cool. Dalia, where can folks find you? Um, the Googles, um, just Google my name, uh, and like from, no, not like that. That kind of came off. Like I didn't <laughs> presumptuous. I'm so sorry. I meant like a lot of my stories are just like a lot of places. So, um, but no, no. Oh my God. Sierra, stop. It's a flex. It's a flex. Google her. Okay. The real Delia though, right? No, like truly find the, the real Delia. Oh, yeah, because people out here posing as uh, me on Twitter these days. So you can find me um, on Twitter at Dahlia J, D-A-L-Y-A-H, Dahlia J. Um, and then you can also find my work at the Texas Observer website. Um, and then I also have a website, DaliaJones.com, but um, I haven't updated it in like two years, a year and a half. So like, give me time is not the most current information. Just know. Diamond, where can folks find you and your work? Um, you can find the whole Media 2070 team on Twitter at, at Media2070. Um, and you can find us on Instagram at media.2070. <laughs> and then you can find the essay and you can learn more about what we're up to and the consortium of folks that we're building with at media2070.org. And if you want to follow me specifically on Twitter, you can find me at at Diamond 5280, because Denver is 5,280 feet above sea level. <laughs> That's why we're the Mile High City. Yes. Wow. Sierra, where can folks find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter um, at Iola B. Hinton. So I O L A B H I N T O N. 
Um, and then of course, like I know I said at scalwagmagazine.org, um, and follow scalwag on Twitter at scalwagmag. Um, also on Instagram, grow our followers. That would be lovely. We would love to have you. Um, thanks y'all. So, so good to be here. So good to be here. Um, lastly, I will plug myself. Um, I too don't have a website, but I'm working on it. Um, but Clarissa M. Brooks on Twitter. Um, my Instagram is truly for myself. So you don't need to know that one, but my work is on my contently page. Um, I am doing work with Just Media as program coordinator for our fellows. Um, and also just want to make sure this is said, if you don't know what press on media is, Again, you're late. Like Press on Media has touched all of our work. Um, it is the place that radicalized me in my journalism. Um, shout out to Manolia, Lewis, Tina Vasquez, all those great folks. Um, co, like truly the folks that have like really, those are the folks that are not seen, but are their work is very much a part of this. Um, and yes, yeah, so, so grateful for all of y'all. Um, yeah, thank you so much to Haymarket for answering a random email that I sent a few months ago and said, y'all need to do a panel on movement journalism. And Sean thankfully was like, sure, let's do it. Um, so, so, so grateful for this platform. Uh, this is the most I've laughed all day and yeah, very grateful to be in this work with y'all. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket books, YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.